I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Girl, real talk. This whole, it's a new year, time to reinvent myself trash is not the vibe for 2024. You can find someone who loves you for you, as you are. You don't need to read a stack of self-help books, only eat sad salads, or like start meditating at 5 a.m. to be ready for dating. So yeah, my advice is to download Bumble and find someone who embraces you the way you are right now. Let me know how it goes. Thresholds is supported by BetterHelp, which is the largest online counseling platform in the world. Everyone deserves to receive the support they need to thrive mentally, emotionally, and relationally. But the barriers to therapy, financial and logistical, are pretty high right now between social distancing and the kind of economic stress that the COVID pandemic has created for so many people. BetterHelp makes it affordable to connect privately with a licensed counselor online from anywhere. They have counselors specializing in depression, stress and anxiety, grief, relationships and family therapy, wellness for members of the LGBTQ community, and more. They'll help you assess your needs and match you with a counselor quickly. And crucially, they make it easy and free to switch counselors whenever you need until you find the one that's right for you. It's confidential and affordable, and they even offer financial aid. So if you've been feeling like you could benefit from talking to a licensed professional counselor but have been holding off because the process of finding a therapist, getting to the office, and finding a way to afford it seemed like too much to handle, check them out. Thresholds listeners get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash thresholds. That's betterhelp.com slash thresholds. I just wouldn't let myself back up. I would just say, well, you're like, if you're afraid of that, that's where we have to go next. And, and, and you'll have to just trust this jump. You'll have to trust that you're going to land or the air is going to do something in you and you're going to breathe now in a way that you've needed to, but you couldn't before for whatever reason. This is Thresholds, a series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new, and the way that experience changed everything they made afterward. I'm Jordan Kistner. This is Thresholds. Something to note about this season of Thresholds is that all of the audio recordings you're going to hear were made in people's homes, often on their cell phones, in order to keep us all socially distant. And what that means is that occasionally you'll hear a slightly diminished sound quality or random life things happening in the background, a car backfiring, a phone ringing, a dog walking into the room, my dog walking into the room. Um, And we hope that you will be generous and bear with us on that. 
Hi, everybody. This is Jordan. Um, I have this weird impulse to ask, how are you? Like, you could answer me and I could hear you, which doesn't really make any sense. This is kind of a one-way uh, vocal transmission. But I, I am curious, like, how are you and who are you and where are you and where are you listening to this right now and what are you reading and how are you feeling? Um, and it occurs to me, actually, that you can answer that question if you feel compelled to through our website. Um, we have a function on our website where you can send us mail here at the show. And so, so how are you? Send me a note, drop me a line uh, at thisisthresholds.com and tell me how you're doing. And also feel free to ask questions or send suggestions for who you think we should talk to and anything else that's on your mind. Today, I have the immense privilege of introducing a conversation with Rachel Eliza Griffiths, who is a poet and a writer and a photographer and an artist of many, many stripes. Most recently, she's the author of Seeing the Body, which is a book that combines her poetry and her photography, and that was a response in large part to the death of her mother after decades and decades of precarious health. And, and a a chronicling and investigation of the immense grief and feelings of confusion that came after that. Since talking to Rachel Eliza, I've been thinking a lot about portraiture and how portraiture can become a way of documenting a subject like another person while also being a way of documenting or capturing a portrait of the author. And that's something I think that I'm thinking about because it's so beautifully on display in this book in, in literal ways and in literary ways. Um, the book is full of these really gorgeous photographic self-portraits that Rachel Eliza had just started kind of diving into right before her mother passed. Um, and in the poetry, it's this portrait of her mother and of her mother's body and at the same time, it's a portrait of herself and of her own body and of her feelings about confusion of like looking in the mirror and seeing her mother's face and looking down at her hands and seeing her mother's hands. And sometimes that vertiginous cross-generational resemblance that becomes even more acute when that person is gone or when you're considering them in a new way because you're trying to capture them somehow on the page or in a photograph. There's this line in one poem where she writes, in the hospital room, I watched my mother rising finally from her battleship. Now we meet in my body. And a lot of our conversation has to do with that movement of the movement away of a mother and the re-encounter with a mother in the daughter's own body, the grieving daughter's body. And our conversation is a lot about that. It's a lot about literary mothers, friend mothers, finding a way through art, um, big risk-taking, scary, leave-it-all-out-there art, as she says, um, to become your own mother. And with that, I will say no more and introduce Rachel Eliza Griffiths. The primary kind of horn of the book is the death of my mother. And at the same time, I would also go as far as to say that it is a bit two-headed. And what I mean by that, I guess maybe two horns, is that right as my mother um, began her transition of dying, I had traveled down to rural Mississippi to work on my first serious attempt at self-portraiture of placing myself as the center of my photographs in a very um, sustained and deliberate, intentional way. And so um, as I had worked, begun to work on those photographs in, in Mississippi and elsewhere in the South, um, that is where I was when I received the phone call and kind of really understood that my mother was dying. And so um this past Monday, uh, this past Tuesday, July 28th, was the actual anniversary of her passing away. And um, it's been six years now. And so what happened was I was in Oxford, Mississippi. And when I realized that my mother was hospitalized and that maybe this time she wasn't going to make it, 
I dropped everything and got on a plane and flew to Philadelphia, where she passed away some hours later. But I was fortunate enough to be at her bedside. Her was She was there, my family, we were all together in this transition. So when I think of uh, seeing the body, I think of the moment, this kind of very visceral moment of her leaving me, uh, leaving my family. And at the same time, I can't help but remember that this was also the moment in my life as an artist that I had kind of dared to do this thing I had never done before, which was to kind of look at myself. I feel as though for many years, uh, I I photograph poets and writers um, as far as like kind of a certain kind of portraiture goes that is external. And I'd done some fine arts kind of photographs that usually would incorporate sister poets and brother poets and friends of mine as subjects, or they would be kind enough to be models for me. Um, I have been doing that for many, many years and seemed to start, I started to be going more inward, both in my writing and myself. And so around that time, um, I started to think about my relationship to the earth and landscape around me and, um, wanting to try to make an effort to record or document or kind of um, apply some kind of visual language to the language I was um, seeking in my poems, I would say. And the strange thing that happens to me now is even when I look at the photographs and seeing the body, it's like I can't get back to that woman anymore. Um, And it's a part of myself. I feel that the person that I see in some of the photographs in the book, she got buried when my mother died. Um, she went into the grave too. And so it's a very profound feeling to look at these photographs of myself. And I know that they're me, but at the same time, um, they're not anymore. Or they're like their former selves or something like that. And so um, I'm not, I'm really not sure anymore why I was there. And um, Something compelled me in the same way that some feeling or emotion will compel me to go to a page and work on uh, a poem. Or I, I'm a lyric poet, and I would say my photographs are very lyrical as well. And so in that space of the lyric, I could go into the messiness of language in the same kind of vein of like messiness with the camera. And it just felt very risky for me to really center myself suddenly when I'm used to being behind the camera and usually prefer that. Do you remember on the day or maybe the day before you got the call telling you that your mother was dying, what what photo you were making? Were you, is there a photo that is, that documents yes. the right before? Um, the photograph that is closest opening the book now and looking is the first, the first photograph when you open the book that is after, um, that that is opposite kind of the nameplate of the book where there are Mm -hmm. two figures. Um, These figures are not me. I'm in neither of these figures. One of them is the poet Ricky Laurentis and the other is um, the other figure is a local woman in Mississippi that uh, I was fortunate enough to find and be able to work with during that time. I think this may be the last photograph I took before I had to get on a plane um, and fly to Philadelphia. I'm I'm pretty certain. Some of the photographs um, in the book happen later after her death, but this is the one I believe is the chronologically most close, is the closest to that moment. Is there a reason why it came first in the book? when you chose the order of photographs to be seen? I think it's a certain kind of um, vortex or blurring of of memory and time and language and history, particularly in the South. There's an energy of almost like prophecy in it, um, a feeling of ancestors. And then also uh, things can come out of this space and come into it. It also reminds me in some ways of like a sonogram when I look at it now, like it has 
It does. Look, I had the same thought that it looks a little bit like a yeah, sonogram. And um, it's almost that kind of like disruption or disorder of actual like air around you when like, I don't know, when you're looking through gasoline and something is about to explode or something like that. Like it has all of that happening in it. And what I also like about it is that I had to I had to exert force on the camera to make it blur this way. Like I had to move the camera in these kind of wild circles in a very frenetic way until I finally hoped that whatever I had in the camera that I had made would be closest to how I felt being in that Southern landscape um, with these two figures wearing white. One is, one you can't see, one is facing me, but the other one, um, which I believe is Ricky Laurentis, um, their back is to the camera. And so it also, for me, is a almost kind of like Janice figure with the heads going opposite ways. And in some ways, this image is a twin of the two Eliza's image, where I, which I think is elsewhere in the book near the author's note, where I'm holding uh, both a camera and a typewriter. And so these, I feel that these are mm -hmm. kind of twin images of something about my own identity. Um there, it's interesting that the first two photographs that we see in this book are of two figures. And the first one is two figures that are not you. And then the second one is two figures that are you. And I was so captivated by this first image that looked before my eye kind of focused on it. It did look to me like mm -hmm. a sonogram and also has these two figures that we imagine are probably female mm -hmm. figures standing mm -hmm. next to each other, shoulder to shoulder, back to back. And it, to me, resonates so much also with the way that the poems in this book are seem to be playing with or speaking to a confusion between self and mother. There's that one poem, I, forgive me, I forget what its name is. I'd have to uh, flip through to find it. But where you describe looking in the mirror and seeing your mother's face in your face. Yes. Um, and I was hoping maybe as, as a transition into talking about your mother's death, if you would just tell me a little bit about your mother. You've given us a lot in here of her as a, as a wonderful cook and as a lover of music. Um, but I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about her. Yes, I miss her very much. She, um, she was a phenomenal person and very special. And um, she, I, I mean, she was kind of larger than life. And more and more, I think about the kind of things she had to survive to be the person who she she was determined to be. Um, she never took any shit off of anybody or anyone for any reason whatsoever. That was one thing <laughs> that like I knew at like age three or four. Um, she was a phenom. She was, I said that word. She said she was, um, you mentioned cooking. That was something that was a very special thing to her. And she was very, very good at it. Um, she grew up in a large family, but she had a lot of obstacles in her family. Her family um, grew up in Washington, D.C., where I am also from, where I was born and where my father was born. And um, she grew up in a lot of poverty. And so she was always aware of the things um, she wanted to be and her character and that being that being her her privilege and her bearing and her wealth was who she was as a person, um, who she was on the inside, irregardless of whatever things, material things or circumstances she may find herself in. And she would always be like, you know, everybody shit stinks. You know, she was she had these <laughs> she had these ways of putting things. I was even like as a child, very like poetic and kind of romantic. And she could be so blunt and just cut through the crap. And I would be like, OK. And she really had a great sense of humor. She loved irrelevant kind of body jokes and conversations. Um, but then she could kind of turn very quickly and get very prim and proper. And she loved reading. She loved books. The first time I saw the books of Maya Angelou, Alice Walker, Toni Morrison, they were on my mother's bookshelves. And, um, you know, 
I sometimes wasn't permitted to go to the park or go to parties, but I could go to the library. My mother never said no if I wanted to go to the library. Hmm. And, um, you know, I watched her for many years of my life since I was probably around the age 11 or 12. She was diagnosed with uh, renal failure, kidney failure. And so I watched her from that age until my mid-30s really fight her body and fight the American uh, medical, you know, system and its tyranny to survive and to see her children grow up. Um, she took care of herself in a way because it did it did mean life or death for her, whether she took care of herself or didn't take care of herself. And so, she really taught me a lot of things uh, in that regard about taking care of yourself, loving other people not taking things for granted and um, growing up and seeing her go through so much just to be in the world has left a really deep impression on me about how I carry myself in the world. That's a beautiful elegy for her. Um, when she died, was it something that you had felt aware of as an impending event such that you were already beginning to orient yourself toward it in, as an artist, as a writer, as a poet? Um, or was it something that you were thrust through very suddenly? I think it's been the greatest fear of my life. Um, from, you know, age 11 or 12, I had to orient myself, um, fixate myself in a way, uh, toward death and it being constantly near my family and the edges of ordinary life. Um, you know, my mother, our house was filled with medical supplies. Long before people wore masks, um, you know, we had to wear masks because she had an impaired autoimmune system. And so sometimes kids would come over and I'd be handing them a mask and they'd be looking at me like I was a freak because, you know, most moms didn't need you to wear a mask to, to come into their house or be near them or something like that. And so, um, you know, many times during those years growing up, there were these almost moments where she wouldn't, she almost wouldn't make it. And so this thing would happen, this kind of um, tripping of the needle of the record, so to speak, was that, you know, is she going to die this time? And so I would have to look that in the eye on a very regular basis I don't think that's healthy, but you know, you can't think like that when you're a kid. You you don't there's no adult to say, well, this isn't healthy. This is your mom and you love her and this is your family. And if this is what it takes for her to be here, then you know, you kind of bear it and go forward and try to be as helpful and useful and and not cause trouble um, you know, to her or bring make her unhappy. So I think this in some way shadowed me for many, many years that one day sooner rather than maybe other people's mothers or other people's lives, I would have this great loss. Um, and as of now, I really can say she's the greatest love of my life. And so, you know, I kept, I, I felt like, I feel as though a part of me was kind of almost bracing myself, um, bracing myself for this moment when it was going to happen and watching her as years passed get weaker and weaker because she had really fought very hard. She ended up getting a, a kidney transplant. Um, and, you know, maybe a decade or so after, maybe 15 years or so after that, um, which is kind of accurate with transplants for kidneys in particular, everything started to go haywire. Other organs started to be problematic, heart trouble, blood pressure, all of these things systemically started to shut down. And um, to kind of watch that and be uh, vigilant about that during most of your kind of coming of age is is a hard thing, is a just distressing thing to watch um, and to feel frustrated because it's coming from the inside. It's coming from inside of her. It's not someone else is doing this to her. It's it's the body itself. Um, and that just was was always difficult for me to reconcile. And so um, just before she died in July, earlier that winter, she had been in the ICU for the longest she'd ever been. 
And um, that time I started to think she's tired now and we're all tired. And um, this, this may, this may be it. And so um, I had a lot of reservations about going down to the South to work on these photographs. And she told me, just go, go and do it. I'll, I'll be here. You know, you got to go do your work. And so, you know, I went, but I, I, I didn't have a good feeling. I felt very nervous. Um, but I did go. And um, by the time I got back to Philadelphia, she wasn't capable of speech at that point. And so, um, you know, the last time I heard her voice, I now know is, you know, in the South where I was in Mississippi and some things that she told me. And um, I just thought I was going to get to talk to her again, but that didn't happen. Although I talk to her now, I have to say, I hear her and I talk to her now, but I mean, in this space, like in the body. Um, I do, I carry her. And when I do look at these photographs, I see her, but as I'm aging now, and I think because of the intensity of our relationship, I can see her sometimes in the mirror and it's really stunning. Um, sometimes I'm grateful for it, but other times I also think, well, where am I at actually? And what part of this body is me anymore? Do you think that's a function of age or is that something that's a function of the fact that she died. And so the remnants of her body, the traces of her body in the world are now something you're carrying in yours. I think it's both. I mean, I've been aware, you know, we look very, very similar. And so people would often say, are you sisters? You know, she was very, very youthful. She was 59 when she died. Um, I'm in my early forties. And so it's a kind of thing where I, I mean, I, I hope that I, I live past 59, but I also feel like certain expressions in my face and my moods, I can see her sometimes more than um, I might have noticed before because I don't have her visually as a reference in, in me, any, like a reference outside of me anymore. And I, I note sometimes when, say, my father or I think one of my siblings kind of looks at me again or says, oh, I see mom then I think, oh, yeah, well, she's here. And then sometimes it's it's like that kind of weird, strange thing where I might be like peeling an orange or washing the dishes and I look down at my hands. And in this particular pose, I see her hands. And I think this is this kind of universal refracting or mirroring that can happen sometimes between bodies. And that feels very powerful to me, um, that sometimes I can look in a mirror or you know, look at my ankles or something and be like, oh, yeah, she's like right here. Um, but yeah, I, and I think some of my grief has made me see her more in myself than maybe I would have if she were still here. But that's a really good question. So much of the the writing that is in this collection seems to be this grappling with description with excavation of your mother's body. And did that feel like and, and maybe excavation is the wrong word because that can that can sound disinterested or something and this writing is extremely tender. It's like love poetry. Um in a way, did that just start coming out of you after she died, this this reverence for her body, or was it there all along? I think it was there all along, but it became amplified when she left, uh, when she died. And I think um, to, to kind of grow up and become who you are in the presence of someone who is chronically, you know, who is chronically ill, her body was a language in our family. Her body was a table. It was a, it was a resting, resting place. It was a well. It was like the place where I came from. And at the same time, you know, she gave me birth, but then, you know, uh, coming towards her and her body with tenderness, with a certain kind of care and delicacy for her, um, was really important to me. Um, you know, I think, after she died, I, you know, one thing in the book that never happens is that I never enter her body. And that felt very important for me as an author, never to write 
never to write like a persona poem or to write, you know, if I wrote in her voice, it was something she said with said to me, or if I found a, you know, a piece of paper or something where she had written something like that, I would share that. But I didn't want to possess my mother in a certain kind of way. Um, and I think in the excavation of the mother, what is also happening is the excavation of myself and my body and the tension and um, conflicts and strangeness of my own body that I could finally in some way grasp and accept and resist and defend different aspects of my own body in the name of my mother's absent body. And so, um, you know, I think there's a lot of kind of blurring in the space of, um, you know, trying to, um, and this act of, you know, burying, you know, my mother in a certain way, but seeing her so clearly and like being able to reach her in a way that when she was here, I probably couldn't or wouldn't have attempted to. Um, How do you mean? Well, I think that I have more space in my body now. Um, I have more space in my body now where I have to be my mother. I have to learn how to mother myself and be my own mother um, I can't hide behind or shoot or use my mother as a shield or kind of lean on her in the way I, I think I did so often when she was alive. And, um, I have to kind of look things in the eye in a way I never had to before because I could like call, get on the phone with my mother or ask her what she thought or, you know, say, oh, the world is doing this to me and call her. And, you know, I mean, she'd give me like, you know, uh, a very strong dose of kind of medicine or whatever, but there's a, there's a different thing where you're kind of standing by yourself suddenly, or you feel you are, I mean, her presence is there, but I have to stand by myself, um, in the center of my own actions and choices and decisions about my life, what I will forgive about myself, how I will move on the grudges I may carry against my own self, but also accepting love of myself with all my flaws and all my drama and troubles to like come towards that and embrace that. And in some way, like pass through those spaces where before I kind of maybe held back in a way. Um, in this book, I particularly was just like, just come through it, just risk everything, like just go for it. And you're going to, you're going to stand up no matter what, and you won't be alone. And so that's what happened, I would say, with this book. But even in my day-to-day -day life, um, her absence allows a certain kind of compass where I am able to move in a way that is about the life I want and, and need um, versus maybe like what my mother might want me to do or not do or her being worried for me or afraid that um, harm could come to me from my what I might write or do or travel or something like that, you know? Yeah. That is such a scary and brave thing to do is to say in this book, I'm just gonna come through it and go as, as far as I need to go and know that I'll be standing. Um, anyway, what where was the moment in the writing process when you had to make that decision what, to commit that that hard? I think the moment that I decided I was going to write a book, that it was going to be a book, because I had scraps of poems, I had journal entries, I had diaries, I had photographs of things immediately after her death that I had kind of, you know, taken, um, you know, the the top of her dresser with her perfume bottles and just things like that, like trying to make some kind of ephemera or something of, of a life through these physical objects. And then it occurred to me that the book would be part of that altar to her. Um, but a lot of the poems, I have to tell you, I mean, it's like kicking, screaming, dragging me into them, like myself, because it would just one mean like she's really, she's really dead that was, I was in denial of that for some time. And, um, if that is true, then like, how am I true? Or how is this, how can this work 
be honest. And it was like to go toward it and to any time there was something that I felt was risky or fearful, I just wouldn't let myself back up. I would just say, well, you're like, if you're afraid of that, that's where we have to go next. And, and and you'll have to just trust this jump. You'll have to trust that you're going to land or the air is going to do something in you and you're going to breathe now in a way that you've needed to, but you couldn't before for whatever reason, not necessarily because of her, but maybe me being in my own way with stuff in my life. So I, I can't say that there was any moment in the book where I didn't feel kind of messy and sweaty and upset and just, you know, I went through like all the feelings and then some <laughs> trying to get toward um, this love, this, you know, the book is a love poem to her, but it's also a love poem to, to myself and the woman I, I am now um, coming through the love of another woman, which is, which is my mother. Yeah. It's, there are just so many resonances with beloved in a way. Um, and which I noticed in particular because you, you sort of quote beloved, um, near the end. And I was wondering how much that was a guide for you as you thought about love being mediated between mothers and children across expanses of death and time. Well, Toni Morrison has always been, I would say, my literary mother. Um, I, in the in a similar way that my mother lives in a kind of molecular, uh, you know, form in me, so does Toni Morrison's language and words. And, um, you know, the poem that invokes um, one of Morrison's characters from from Beloved has this wonderful sermon in the clearing where she literally is telling the Black people there, you know, to love your hands, love your your necks, love your throat, love your laughter. Like, you know, that there is this, um, this kind of fusion of your physical Black body with this great love and that they're inseparable, the skin and the love and who you are. And that's your work. That's your labor. And, um, you know, the first, the first time I read Toni Morrison, as I mentioned earlier, was, you know, grabbing a book off of my mother's bookshelf and being intrigued by the cover and thinking, let me, let me, you know, this is probably a book I'm not supposed to read. So I'll, I'll check it out. And, (laughs) and then falling in love, falling in love right away and thought, oh, here is the woman I can go to who will tell me the things my mother can't tell me or won't tell me, or I'm too afraid to ask her here is the source here, here is the heart of that world and that woman. And, and that woman was the writer I was becoming, um, the writer I wanted to be and dreamt of. And so in the heart of um, Toni Morrison's books, I was able to kind of place my heart next to hers and feel that it was loved and, you know, safe, but also challenged, you know, and I like that Toni Morrison is difficult. I, I like that quite a bit. And I like how she shows off on her pages and things like that. And my mother liked to show off too. And I so I just, I think they'd have a lot in common and they both like to cook. And it was just over the years, my mother um, encouraged me to go toward writers like Toni Morrison and, and Alice Walker and, and Maya Angelou and things like that. Um, and so I don't think there's any um, way that Toni Morrison's energy wouldn't be in this particular book. Um, I'm thinking now, I think in a week or two, we'll be coming upon the first anniversary, first year anniversary of Toni Morrison dying. Mm-hmm. And again, when she died, it, it was as visceral in me as my own mother when she had died. And I mean, I'm, I'm still grieving it pretty hard, um, that loss. And yet I know all I should be is grateful because the trove and, and kind of vault of 
of love that is there and intelligence and and humor and irony and black joy is there. I really love the way that mothering in your work gets all bound up with language and the way language is passed down like nourishment and how that gets wrapped up in food and in touch and in the body and in material. And in a way, it seems like you, this book is an attempt to kind of capture those things, capture that substance of, of what a mother can give and, and weave it into this, this thing that you have made, that you can make and externalize that holds all these, your mother and yourself as someone figuring out how to mother yourself and Toni Morrison and Ms. Clifton and all these other, all these other mothers you're, you're keeping with you. I mean, I, I think, you know, it's kind of like there are different circles, circles of that where some of the things are so unconscious and deeply embedded in me that they're kind of in my daily way of going or, uh, about my life. And then there are moments where I kind of zoom in or zoom out and really um, think about a particular instance or a particular um, texture or matter that I'm, you know, I'm focusing on. I have a lot of wonderful, wonderful, wonderful women in my life who they're, we mother each other too. Um, some of them are writers. Uh, some of them do other things. They're into art, they're painters or they're photographers, they're singers, they dance, they do different things. And so um, we kind of will, you know, hold space for each other. And so that feels really beautiful to me um, to have that. And, um, you know, sometimes um, I am aware of, you know, maybe it's a younger writer or someone coming to me. And in a way I can be I don't know if I would necessarily say it's maternal, but there's certainly an energy of nurturing or support. What can I do? What do you need? Um, how can I listen or help? Um, that feels very important to me. Um, I think my mother, specifically thinking of her um, and thinking of myself as an artist who, you know, working with textiles, working with, you know, fabrics or painting and things like that, you know, touch is really important. And I'm aware of the lack of it right now, too, with the pandemic of this need that so many of us crave for for touch. Um, and so, um, you know, one of the things that brings me a lot of joy is like, you know, being in the kitchen and being able to make my mother's favorite dishes, being able to be in the kitchen and like improvise or riff off of something the way she made it, but now make it my own way. I love food. I love eating. I love feeding people. I'm the person who always overcooks and sends everybody home with like food wrapped up. <laughs> it's like, I just <laughs> really adore that. And so, um, you know, I know I got that from my mother because she was the same way. And so there's these gifts of, of things. Um, I loved when she used to do my hair and just, you know, wash. She loved getting her hair washed and she would be so happy. And sometimes she asked me to do her hair and she would just kind of glow and kind of hum sitting there. And it just brought us both a lot of pleasure. And so um, these are the kinds of things that I carry with me and just the thing, the ways that we can comfort people. Um, and then also the ways we can, you know, challenge people too. And I, I don't mean challenging touch or anything like that, but just like, you know, your, your, I would call my sister friends and kind of even some of the, the people in my life who do, you know, mother me in a certain kind of way of like asking sometimes the difficult questions, listening to difficult things that you, you just have to say to somebody else, or you have to write it down or, you pick up a pen or you try to draw it or paint it or use color and, and, and say something about it, um, or just to like, see it, you know? So I feel like all of that is really important. Um, I don't, I see it, you know, the space is very active. It's a loving space, but at the same time, I don't necessarily find it like a sentimental, you know, every, everything is like hugs all the time because a lot of it is tears. It's, you know, anger, it's, listening um and it's 
you know, listening to what that person needs, not what you need or want them to do or be, but like what they need for themselves. And so that that's an art. That's not just like everyone gets that by default. You have to put work in to learn how to be that for other people and to really to be that way for yourself as well. It's really important. I think that's so true. Mm -hmm. Do you think of photography as different from writing in that it is more material? Is it more embodied of an art practice for you? For me, uh, photography is certainly, um, it's much more physical uh, than, uh, writing is physical for me, but it definitely is not, you know, it's not, uh, it doesn't have the, the requirements and things that photography needs to make it happen. Like, I'm sitting here and looking at the cover of Seeing the Body and remembering how badly I was shaking by the time I climbed up into these rocks to take this picture. Um, you know, I had to carry a tripod. It was hot. It was summer. Um, I was in the desert with a dear sister, um, poet Natalie Diaz and I, we were there in the desert and I was making these photographs. I didn't know this was going to be the cover of a book. I didn't know what it was going to be. I just needed to, to make it. And she said, I'll go with you. So we went. And so, you know, I'm very physical when I photograph. I feel it in my back. I need to soak in salt sometimes when I'm finished. As I get older, I can feel it in my knees, my back, my legs, my neck, everything when I come away, even portraits. It's like a, such a concentration on someone else and that energy too, even photographing another human being, like to meet them and make it collaborative. Um, sometimes I have to say, working on some of these poems, I just couldn't move. I felt like I was on the, the floor after working on some of these poems and the sensation was similar. And I'd be like, I just don't have anything else now. I'm done. I can't do anymore. And having to go and like lie down and just not, you know, not move. And so, um, you know, a lot of the poem, a lot of the photographs that are in this book, too, they're in the South in the summer. And if you want to feel some heat, you know, <laughs> go to Mississippi in July. I mean, I would be soaking with sweat, hot bugs, everything. It was not romantic. And that's like the work of it. It's like gnats and bugs are crawling all over you. You're soaked. Set this tripod up and like... And then get to like the actual energy of what you are trying to express in the image, um, you know, frame that in a way, like frame and quotation marks. How are you framing this? Um, I'm very physical. So I think the, the visceral energy of the poem and the photograph in the space of the lyric, as I mentioned before, it's like it's kindred. But, you know, there's just a very different thing when I have to carry a pack of lenses and camera bodies on my back and lights and, you know, get in a car and draw, like, it's a whole different thing than, you know, maybe, you know, sitting and, and working on drafts of poems and things like that. It, it, there's still a physical toll, but it's, you know, there are some d definitely different nuances in it. Yeah. Does it, does the amount of labor that goes into making a photograph require that it be more premeditated than a poem? It depends what it is. And I think you could say the same with the poem too. You know, with the poem, I, I, I don't really, I guess with the poem, I don't, I may have some premeditation, but it always, the poem always leads me towards some kind of discovery. And, and it's, and I just know it has to be that way. I can't think, oh, I know how this, I know I'm going to write a poem about this. That just rarely ever works for me. Um, that's not how the poem arrives. But the photography, there is some deliberation. You look at a landscape, you say, I'm going to stop my car here. I'm looking at the day. This is when the light is better for this mood. Oh, there's a storm coming. I want those dramatic clouds. Oh, and post when I revise, quote unquote, this photograph, I'm going to change the whole color palette. I'm going to color, you know, correct this, or I'm going to change the contrast. So the other thing that happens with the photograph which can happen in revision with poetry, but it's different is that, you know, it's not just I made the photograph and that's it. It's also what happens afterwards um, with the image. And then like, who is this image for? How can it be read? You know, how is narrative happening or not? What is the mood of it? All of those things, I, t I do think they're in poems as well. But um, 
you do have to have some premeditation about what, you know, I didn't suddenly just end up in the South, think, oh, I'll take some, you know, a lot of equipment. (laughs) I had to say, there's something in the South that's speaking to me. Um, And at the time, it was actually the the work of William Faulkner in Roanoke, where he lived. That was the specific thing that drew me to Mississippi, was to work on a project about that. And in drawing myself down to Faulkner, I was then drawn into these these inner spaces in myself, um, which I didn't even know then. You know, I look at some of these pictures now and I think, wow, my mother was still alive when I took this picture of myself. You know, and it's, it's like that kind of shock goes through me again. But, um, you know, photographs too, like, you know, if I have to work with a model, I don't just like go, like I have to find the model. I have to set up like a a shot list, so to speak. And like that, what, what am I doing with lighting? Is there wardrobe? Is there, you know, all of these things are kind of the staging that has to happen and you can have all that happen and still there will be the discovery and surprise that things happen as you're looking through the lens, through that little viewfinder, they start coming into you. And maybe what you thought you were going to make, you may make that, but then there will be this other image that you find that you're looking at later and you're like, oh no, that's it actually. That's the thing, the thing I wasn't expecting or that moment where it's slightly out of focus or something like that. Or like, and then you're like, oh, you know, and you can be surprised that way. Mm. Do you remember the first photo you made after your mother died? Um, of myself or just in general? Uh, I was thinking of yourself that was included in this book. But oh, yeah. I, let me see. I can probably figure that out pretty quickly. It might be this image of me in Mississippi jumping underneath the American flag. It might be that mm-hmm. one. Um, mm-hmm. That's definitely one of them that was after. It was July 2015. And it was taken, I made it around the time uh, Sandra Bland was murdered or found, uh, no, Sandra Bland was murdered. So it was around that time. And I think the month before Sandra Bland was killed, it was the Charleston Nine had happened. Mm. And so again, this kind of collapse of, you know, private grief, and emotions with a national and public and kind of political space all came together. I think I could probably, if I had to pin it down, go back and look. But I think one of the things that happened in this book is that I didn't want to do that, which is why there aren't titles and dates on the images. Because there's a way that happens in memory where you're like, when was that? What month was that? Where was I at? I mean, I, I can look at each photograph and know physically the map of where I was in this country when I made it. But the years, the months, the actual day, it's a little more tricky to to pin down as far as my emotional memory. Do you feel that the the practice of writing the book, photographing the book, making this body of work materially changed you or moved you into a different process, a bit different, sorry, like a different part of the grieving process, a different part of your relationship with your mother. I'm curious about work that comes out of a transformation, but is itself transformative. I think the process when I was working on it was, um, changed me, but I was already altered and the kind of almost nonverbal space before I began to try to write or felt compelled to write. I, I almost wish I had something more positive to say, but I don't, I don't, I feel like, um, what I, one of the things I give thanks for about the book is I was saying to a friend the other day, like almost every week since this book has been out and it just came out last month, someone, mostly strangers have written to me about needing this book. They're burying loved ones during this pandemic. They're not being able to say farewell to mothers, grandmothers, fathers, cousins, uncles, you know, family, and also dear friends and and to even hold space with their friends who are losing people. And so they've given this book to their friends. They're reading the book. They're sharing it with their family um, and that it has become a space for them. I, can't live in this book anymore. I mean, I, I, I did it and I made it, but I, 
I'm someone else now. Um, and I know I am maybe not because of the book itself as the object, but the, the, the physical, the, the process of going through it, as I mentioned earlier, like kind of going through the flames and, and make, taking the risk and just saying, I'm just, I'm just going to tell it. And I, and this is how it was. And, and can it help somebody else? I think that really matters to me. Um, I'm writing a novel now. I'm as far as I could probably possibly be from, <laughs> from this kind of spectrum of this book, but I probably wouldn't be able to write a novel or be working on a novel if I weren't if I hadn't written this book. And so I realized that this book is a breakthrough for me. It's unlike any other book I've ever written. It's so raw. It's so like, here is here are my ribs. Here are my horns. Here is my trouble and my mess and my joy. Here is my rage and my grief and my sorrow and like who I am. And so like, I don't know if I have another book of poetry in me right now. Um, but maybe I will years from now, but I just feel like I gave this so much. Um, and it's given, it's given me something that I almost can't quantify or qualify as anything else or like making it a conduit or something like, I don't, I don't even know. It's like an organ in my body now or something, but at the same time, it's so involuntary to me at this point. It's like a part of a bigger system that is bigger than me, or it feels that way. That probably sounds really confusing. <laughs> no, that doesn't sound confusing at all. I like he have this impulse to say congratulations. That is such a beautiful way to feel about a book. Mm. Um, like it's so amazing to feel like I gave it everything I mm-hmm. had. It was this unique transmission yes. from the depths of myself, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. now it's out. And I'm someone else. Yeah, I like that word transmission. And I I think um, what it felt like so many, you know, for the years that it took me to write this book was this kind of channel or frequency or vibration between myself and these kind of parts of me that that almost had to kind of like die or were buried in grief Um but this kind of almost like Phoenix energy of like this fire now that I, that I am and that I accept and love, like I can bring it, like it's out now and I can just, I can kind of go forward in this way with the strength that, um, I didn't really have before on the, on the page. I don't feel, um, my poems were just very different and one concerned with different things. Um, but these poems, um, and these images, it's like all of myself's coming forward. Um, and, you know, a lot of acceptance and like come to Jesus moments with myself about, you know, things I care about and people I care about and where I failed, but also where others failed me. And just to like go forward from that. Um, and to be like, it's going to be okay. Like, it's going to be okay. I really do feel that the way that other people are connecting to the book. That is like what I hoped for most is that, that it could help someone else. And as I'm sitting here talking to you and thinking about very dear ones to me who, you know, are are losing mothers and, and loved ones during this time and others, it's just like, well, maybe that's what the book, you know, maybe that was the thing too, that was going to happen. And that's the discovery and surprise. And like, that feels pretty nice to me. Um, going forward but I can't I can't necessarily say like oh it was cathartic for me or whatever it hurt too bad it just hurt and it still hurts it's some days it's like do a virtual reading like I launched this book like during a pandemic I had like a virtual <laughs> launch and it was amazing but it was like I got done reading these poems and then like closed my laptop and like my dog looked up at me like and that was it you know <laughs> and it's like oh my god okay yeah. perspective you know that's where we're at and i just cried i cried i just thought okay and then you know that realignment then too of like you know scale and what matters and it's okay for me to cry cuz i'm launching my book in a pandemic that's fine <laughs> it doesn't mean that anything is less or more important it's all i'm human you know and this book is for my mama and i'm crying and that's fine so um you know i guess 
books have long lives. I know that. And so, you know, they have long spines and dreams and they, they live in their own way after you've, you know, done what you can to give them breath. And so I just hope I gave this book a lot of breath. Um, it took a lot of mine, but I needed it. I breathe so differently now. So I'm grateful for the book in that way and the poems and kind of the mirror they became for me in a way that I really needed. Thresholds is a production of Lit Hub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshwood of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. Special thanks to Farrar Strauss and Drew. I'm Jordan Kistner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kistner. We'll see you next week. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.